Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, why are you laughing? <laughs> because before the listeners know, before you're like, I think this is going to be a casual episode. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> I have to get into character, David. Uh, you know, I'm in a good mood. We've had, uh, we've had a few weeks of great uh, guests. Fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and now yeah, we have another guest. We're keeping guest. the guest train rolling. Absolutely. We've got Frank Feel My Wrath McGrath here. It's <laughs> very exciting. Now, yeah, we've had we've had guests on who are who are friends. Yeah. Like certain like we certainly knew and were friends with like an Ed Salazar before. Right. Uh and then we've had people like Zaljanan who have gone on to become hmm. friends of ours. Right. But uh I we've known Frank for years. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh but he's not just uh, having the buddy on the podcast. He's that's right. Uh, this is a, this is an accomplished young man. Frank, introduce yourself. Hi, hi my name is Frank McGrath. Uh, I am a uh, assistant editor, occasional editor, um, and uh, I'm a cancer. You could not look more. <laughs> you could not look more uncomfortable, Frank. Pull up to the chair. Uh, pull up to the mic. You don't look like you're having fun. Come on. Could I get a cocktail? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh-huh. you, you look like you're going to put your hand over the mic and then consult your attorney before you. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the way you're sitting. <laughs> but uh, for listeners who maybe want to want to picture Frank, if you're a Lost fan, it's Redzinski with yes, shorter hair. It is. Nice. It is true. <laughs> nice. And p- to people who don't watch Lost, picture. Uh, John Landis. Yeah, I. Eh, he's got more hair. Well, I'm he, rather bald. Landis wearing a hat. Yeah. Um, it's fun. Did I tell you the Landis story? I've spent some time. With I think John you. Landis. I think you did. Well, that's the thing you told us beforehand. That there are certain things that you might have told me in confidence right. that we can't talk about on the show. So I was not going to ask you about John Landis. That is one that we know. can't. I, I can talk a little bit about that one. All right. Okay. He's. Go ahead. He. Uh, he. he He's a nice guy, but he's filled with kind of energy, and he's you know he's a fairly big shot director, so he's not always. He likes to boss people. He he, <laughs> he shouted at me for about eight hours. It was fun <laughs> though. It was great. I mean, I got shouted out, shouted at by John Landis, the director of the Stupids. Yeah, well, or you know, yes, the Stupids, Beverly Hills Cop three, and then there is uh, you know. Oh really? Yeah. Oh geez. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow just, that's actually worse than the Stupids. Yeah, but hey, well you know there was the Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London. Animal House, yeah, yeah, whatever. Some of that stuff, uh, but no, it, I mean it was, it was, uh, it was cool because I got to actually, I was covering for the editor that I was assisting. Um, there's a documentary that I worked on uh, called The Boys. Okay, uh, it's coming out on the 22nd of this month. Well, uh, coming out in, in theaters. Theaters. Uh, I think we're going to be playing at the El Capitan here in town. In, here in town, and I think Landmark Theaters. I think we're opening in New York and L.A. They're going to see how that does and then potentially go a little wider. It, but it's going to be like an art house. Right. Kind of okay. uh, it's about Richard and Robert Sherman. They were they, they are brothers. They were a songwriting team. Oh, uh, okay. They wrote some pop hits in the 50s and early 60s, and they started writing for the Disney studio. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I Okay. Yeah, Bobby Sherman. That's where I've where I've heard that name. Or is that a different, different. different guy? Different guy. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, because I was watching a documentary on the Jungle Book, the animated, uh, the Disney version well, yeah, of the Jungle that's the Book. Sherman Brothers. But yeah, it is, it's and they they make reference to him as Bobby. Sorry, okay. and so so that's who we're talking about. But gotcha. uh, yeah, uh, they wrote some really like catchy, not cringe-inducing songs. They I had, mean, they had a good run where they wrote some pretty kick-ass songs. Uh, yeah, for and they had a very close relationship with Walt Disney, which mm-hmm. was not always the case. Apparently, with Mr. Disney, uh, right? But yeah. Uh, yeah, so the documentary is about them and their okay. kind of career. Have you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've seen it. You've 
seen it in yes in in pieces. I, well, I've seen least. the finish. We were at the San Francisco International Film Festival last month, so I saw the complete final version. Okay, well, we're gonna we'll talk more about that soon. Sure. Um, sorry, I thought I heard something. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's t- well, let's first talk about how you how you got into editing. Sure. Um. This is weird because I know the answers to these I questions. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't. Well, hey. Just, okay. t- just point it at me. All right. So, Tyler. Uh, yeah. Good question, by the way. Thank you. Um, I went to film school at Columbia College, Chicago. Woo. Uh, oh, I, I've, I met, I've been there. Yeah. Where I met <laughs> you two fine gentlemen. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually wanted to, well, I mean, to be honest, I wanted to you know, write and direct and all that uh, uh-huh. stuff, as lots of young film students want to do. And then I was studying cinematography, and I took a bunch of camera and lighting classes. But I took an editing class, I think the second year there, and it just felt right. I just I, I the feedback I got from that instructor was better than any other feedback I had gotten in like lighting mm. and camera classes. So and it just was fun, and yeah. uh, I st- stuck with it. And, uh, came out here and started assisting. And what was your first job out here? Uh, my first assistant editor job was one week. Uh, a good friend of mine, Eric Strand, got me the job oh, okay. on a Hewlett Packard industrial film. Uh, <laughs> that was a week. I was going for a different one. I know. Uh, <laughs> then the other job, the first real substantial job I had was on Comedy Central's Mind of Mencia. It's a very, it's a very popular, successful show oh, over there on the network. Yeah, the kids, Comedy love, Central. The kids love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that, uh, I was a PA, though. I was an editing PA. I mean, just doing right. runs, nothing. Uh, but the first, like, big kind of break i had as an assistant was on arctic tail for paramount mm-hmm. and national geographic films yeah well uh do people remember arctic tail and kind of came and went yeah i don't think anyone did <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a job unless, unless starbucks is still trying to sell those plush uh no, polar bears so. uh, the only person i know <laughs> that bought those plush animals was my mother and she gave them to one of my nephews <laughs> oh that's kind of sad yeah. oh uh, Hey, it uh, bought me bought me a computer and a car, so it was a good enough job for me. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so since Arctic Tail, uh, and then I, wa- I worked on Darfur Now. Yeah, I'll talk into the microphone. There we go. <laughs> uh, I worked on Darfur Now. Was assistant editor on that. Um, that was we did that for Warner Brothers. Then uh, I knew it was you. Um, this isn't necessarily in sequential order, but uh, sure. I knew it was you. We did for HBO. Uh, and what's that? That is a forty-minute documentary on the life and work of John Cazale, who played Fredo in the Godfather films. That's right. Um, that was I would imagine people who listen to Battleship Retention probably know who John Cazale is. Well, oh. let's hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. Yes. Um, and then I then the boys. Um, I did a little bit of work on a low-budget feature called Baby O, but I don't know what the status of that is anymore. Uh, did very brief work on youth and revolt but i don't like i don't even mm. know I, I doubt i'll even have a credit on that okay it's just, but uh so let's uh let's talk about what <clears throat> what an, an assistant editor does um okay so it depends on the budget and the s- scope of the project so you can have multiple assistants or you it's more likely there's going to be like one assistant because they can be expensive uh mm-hmm. assistant editor is responsible for the running of the editorial department uh the picture editorial department you just you um 
bring in all the material that comes from if it's a documentary mm-hmm. or a narrative feature all the material that's shot comes through you you organize it you set up the project um, and you have to track the material as it's being worked with by the director and the editor and then once you get kind of closer to picture lock or you have picture lock which means you're no longer cutting the project Mm -hmm. then you start working with outside departments and you're kind of it's like workflow management you're sending material to the sound department to the cult you know the 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 film colorist uh effects departments um but beyond that you're also you're doing whatever the director producer and editor needs you to do to from day to day to get the film edited Mm um i you know, the editor could... It depends on the relationship you have with the editor and director you're working for. If, if you've built up trust and experience with them, they might have you cut some stuff. Yeah. Uh, may or may not end up in the final product. But, um, you know, if the editor's kind of overrun... Uh, for example, on Darfur Now, there's a couple times the editors were just kind of up to their necks, and uh, I sat and worked a little bit with the director. But that was just really, like, minor things i don't think in it nothing like ended up in the final cut or anything but the, uh whoop, hang on are you kidding me <laughs> with this <laughs> anyway um <laughs> that normally doesn't happen this every time we record in this space it's a little different <laughs> somehow uh and this time apparently the phones ring which has never <laughs> happened before you can also hear phones ringing occasionally on never not funny huh. so because they uh course record the same place and so it it just happens you know people are used to it (coughs) so i'm sorry go on (laughs) (laughs) but i mean you 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 sort of are dismissive about like that only happens occasionally but that's i mean your your desire is to be an editor yes well i don't don't mean to sound dismissive it's just you know yeah it just it's uh your primary job as an assistant is making sure the edit department is up and running from day to day and it's it's I guess it's a weird question for me because I don't know how to succinctly sum it up. There's yeah. just so many different things you could be having to do. Part of the, the but I guess what I just wanted to sort of relate to the listeners is that a, a, an assistant editor is different than an editorial PA, which you are on Mind and Oh yeah, yeah. That, that you're just a PA. You're getting coffee and yeah. I, I, I was just trying to make you look sure. good. Oh, hey, because thanks, I didn't want my sure. the listeners to gotcha. think that you were just a, a PA because you know people might think that assistant. Uh, yeah, you know, but no, you're an assistant editor. You've you, got you betcha. You got tasks and responsibilities. But oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about getting to occasionally have some some creative input. Yeah, I mean, it's the last couple of projects. Well, it's the boys was uh, was nice because um, I definitely the editor I assisted, Rich Evers, uh, and the directors uh, Jeff and Greg. They would ask me, you know, they'd ask me my opinion. It's not that my opinion carried as much weight clearly as theirs, but you know, I was brought into the edit room and asked, you know, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. What do you have any advice? So that you know, that was nice. It's not definitely not something they have to do. Yeah, but yeah. So well, let's you uh, you know you talked about how you got you got into editing at Columbia, at Columbia College, yes. Chicago, uh, and at that at that time you were working on student shorts and your own stuff maybe. And I, well, so. Um, I've cut lots of short films mm-hmm. between Chicago and here. Uh, basically, the the kind of area my career, life, whatever, is in right now, I, I get paid to be an assistant editor, and I cut lots of stuff as favors 
for free. Like I cut short projects. Is that the, is that the way it works for a lot of people in your yeah. like sort of stage? Yeah, I mean, if you want to, and you know, a lot of people, you can be an assistant editor for your career. If you're working union, you can definitely do that. You get paid well enough. Uh-huh. Um, to make the leap from assistant to editor can be difficult, and it depends. When you say editing, that's a pretty broad world. There's feature film editing. There's TV editing, which can be you know something like Mind of Mencia, or it could be The uh-huh. West Wing or The right. Sopranos. Uh, there's commercials advertising that's a whole nother world and there's all each one of these worlds has its own kind of like ladder for you for an assistant to climb so Uh there's can happen differently um you can be an assistant uh you know you can be you can be a feature film assistant editor for like 15 20 years work with the same people and slowly work your way up Mm -hmm. to cutting features um you could also be lucky and know the next Martin Scorsese and, you know, yeah. be friends with them in film school. And, and that's kind of, I mean, I'm sure you enjoy cutting the short films, but a part yep. of you has got to be kind of like hoping like if this guy is making this short film ends up being, you know, Wes Anderson. It's uh, pretty cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, you'd be in on the, on the ground floor there. But, you know, editing, you have to build up experience. Like I, I'm pretty confident in the skill set I have, but yeah. I've only been doing it for a few years. And mm-hmm. I know that, you know, it can be kind of frustrating working on short films for little or no money, but you've got to, like, really learn that skill set. It's not – you don't just wake up and say, oh, well, you know, I know how to use Avid or Final Cut Pro, so I'm an editor because I know how to use these mm-hmm. programs. It's years of experience and learning how to work with the director, how to – the give and take between a director and a producer, learning that kind of personal dynamic. Um, and, you know, every – Every project that I edit, no matter how small, I'm a, I feel like I'm a better editor for having done it because right. it's just more experience. So, uh, there's so there's this dichotomy between the you're doing editing short films and assisting on larger on these, projects. On larger yeah. projects, but the the other dichotomy is that you're editing narratives and you're assisting on documentaries. How did you for the most part, yeah? And you know, like I like I said, when you were at at Columbia, you weren't you were cutting short narrative features or short yes. narrative films um how did you get into documentary did you just sort the of jobs fall i was it? offered yeah you know it's when you start out you take whatever job comes your way um i came out here wanting to work on narrative feature films mm-hmm. but the job offers that i got were pretty good and they were documentaries and to be honest i think documentaries are a pretty good place to start for editorial yeah why is that documentaries are harder Okay. Uh, hmm. Just across the board, it's for Darfur now was a very stressful project, but I was a better assistant editor for going through it. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of time, we didn't have a lot of money, we had hundreds of hours of footage. I imagine that's a big thing with documentaries. Is yes, there's a lot more raw footage. There's so much more footage, and typically documentaries. They're Fortunately, the docs I've worked on have been studio docs, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit more stability. There's a little bit more money, but they're still pretty underfunded. Um, but documentaries, you know, even if it's not studio, they just they don't have as much money as they need. They don't have as much time, but they have so much more footage, and you have so much harder of a job because you don't have a script. The, the director, if they're a good director, they know what they want. You know, they have an idea of what they're going for, and they probably have an outline. But mm-hmm. you just you go out there and you shoot whatever it is you're shooting in the real world, and you have hundreds of hours of footage, and you have to sift through it and 
find the story. I remember the, uh, I believe it's the only Oscar that Hoop Dreams was nominated for was Best Editing. Uh, and I remember uh, before I saw the film, I remember thinking like, I think I had seen like clips of it and um, remember thinking like, well, you know, it's well edited, but I, I can't, I don't know why, why would, why could it, why would it possibly be nominated? And then I saw the film and realized like, right, eight years worth of yeah. footage. <laughs> You know, condensed into a two-plus-hour film. Oh, well, and it's a documentary and a narrative film are the they're movies. You're making a movie. You want to mm-hmm. tell an engaging story. Yeah. And when you can take a it, King of Kong, I think is a is a great example. King of Kong was an amazing film. And when you th- when you look at it, it's a movie about a guy in his what thirties or forties uh-huh. who plays lots of Donkey Kong. <laughs> but that's a really engaging. Mm-hmm. fascinating films they're good storytellers mm-hmm. i mean it doesn't it you know it's just as for me it's just as engaging as you know watching st- star wars i guess yeah um i feel like with with documentaries like uh i mean depending on the on the type that it is but um like with a narrative you have beginning middle and end and it's a story you know and so that it's 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 easier to watch because like we're engaged cuz it starts when we're starting. With a documentary, it's a little different. I mean, it has a beginning, middle, and end, but the beginning has to be almost like, hey, here's why we're making this film. Here's why we find it interesting, you know? And it seems like more of a challenge uh, on every level, but certainly the editing, like, what to include in order to hook the audience on something that they probably otherwise wouldn't care about. Like, there's another one. There have been... uh, like King of Kong, and then there was one called Spellbound. Mm-hmm. There was one called Word Wars. Like, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of documentaries about very small, uh, you know, subcultures. Um, Word Wars is yeah. the Scrabble one, right? And then Word Play is the crossword Word, one. Yes, yes. Word Wars is Scrabble. Word Play is crossword puzzles. And like, have you seen Word Wars? The Scrabble? Uh, no, I've seen so Word Play. Good. Yeah, I did. You I, see it, Frank? The, no. the Scrabble documentary. No. It's so good. I like. I mean, I I enjoy them because I just I love the idea that you know that <laughs> something that I I have no interest in. I'm bad at crossword puzzles. I have respect for people that can do them. Not, seemingly not enough respect to watch them for two hours. But it is so fascinating you know that and and it's because like they just they know what to include they understand that as you said a movie is a movie and you've got different things to work with but what intrigues a viewer is always kind of kind of going to be the same Mm -hmm. you know and so uh you know i mean not everything's going to be the fog of war where it's a fascinating guy saying fascinating things sometimes it's just a guy playing donkey kong and that (laughs) and you know some people would say that that's somehow more engaging than, you know, Fog of War capturing the Freedmans because it's, you know, not easier to watch, but those are about topics that are a little rough. Right. But uh, now, um, oh, I'm sorry, David, go. What? Oh, it looked like Did you I were give about the impression to... I was going to say something? Oh, yes. You, yeah, <laughs> you are sorry, sitting yes, in front you, of a microphone. You look, well, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, you look like you're about to continue the questioning. I'm sorry that I got us off track, by the way. No, that's fine. I mean, I, the... Sort of the the point I wanted to get to eventually was the uh, well you know what I'll get to that later. There's okay. a, there's a question I want to ask are, is are are they are they separate worlds documentary and narrative editing? Um, in terms of the kind of like 
people that work in them. The yeah, is it is it hard once you're sort of established yeah. in one? Is it harder to get? It into is, the other they one? are different worlds. There is some overlap, um, but it's. And I think this can be said for lots of things in Hollywood. It's very easy and easy to fall into like a get pigeonholed, uh-huh. held, uh, and uh, yes, doc people, doc editors, assistants generally work in docs. Um, Darfur now, and this is just what I've kind of pieced together. The things that I've worked on, primarily Darfur now and Arctic Tale, because they were studio documentaries. I think that's where the overlap came from. So I worked with some. Oh, okay. people from the feature film world so for me in terms of like where i want to like leap to that's kind of what i've been using to kind of get i do enjoy documentaries it's 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 more challenging i think it's more rewarding when you get it right mm. um but they're really hard to it's hard to carve out a career in documentaries because they are they're not well funded you do people aren't always paid it's not even you know getting paid really well it's just getting underpaid for like what you do mm-hmm. um and there, there's no consistency you know it can take three years to edit a documentary you're not working three years you know you can be working for like six months and they're like oh we gotta shut down we have no more money we'll no. call we'll call you you know we'll call you when we have more money you hear from them a year later I, i've been working on um another national geographic film and um the producers are great guys. I've worked with one of them before. They just don't have a lot of funding right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's about modern-day modern slavery in America. Hmm. Uh, so it's it's a tough topic, and it's hard, I think, to raise money for that because right. people aren't necessarily going to flock to the theaters for it. Um, so I've worked about a month on that, and it's kind of stop and go. Like start, We start up, we work a few weeks, and then it's like, oh, we don't have any more money. We'll, we'll call you. So I'm still waiting to hear mm-hmm. uh, what's happening with that. So... <clears throat> the the main sort of thrust of the, the episode that I wanted to get to is the the differences in actual editing between documentary films and narrative films. And it, is there much of one? Well, y- there can be. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you're it's like I was saying before. I guess a movie's a movie. It's storytelling. You're right, but there's a big difference in the way that they're shot. Yes, because well, know, yeah, and you know, I think though in the last I don't know maybe twenty years, certain kind of stylistic choices have kind of become more mainstream in Hollywood narrative mm-hmm. film taking from like the documentary aesthetic in terms of um American Splendor I don't know that, yeah. mm-hmm. something like that or just you know handheld like some directors are a little bit more they'll they'll kind of just like shoot to shoot they'll turn a camera on and shoot and have their actors improv which is a little bit more mm-hmm somehow a little bit more of a documentary way to do it i guess right um but well so yeah so if you're editing a narrative film you have a script mm-hmm. it was you know the movie was shot based on the script so you don't have to like it's a little bit more laid out in a documentary you just have hundreds of hours of footage so you're sifting through that and there's a real challenge and you'll get to a point in a documentary where you have your scenes and you'll have some sort of a patchwork of, okay, here are our subjects, characters. Uh, here are our scenes. Here's the kind of general story we want to tell. But to even get to that point, you're, you're, you're sifting through just footage of real life, trying mm-hmm. to find your, mm-hmm. your, your characters and trying to find that story. Uh, whereas on a narrative, you already have that. You have your characters. You have your story. So a screenwriter wrote that already. Uh, in the doc, you have 
you have an idea of someone I would hope at some point had an idea of okay so I want to tell this story and these are the this is the place or the people I'm uh, filming to tell this story but you have to spend like on Darfur now when I came we had two edit teams I came on with an editor named Lenny Feinstein and the Darfur now was uh, six different stories that kind of were interwoven to tell the saga of what's happening to the to the people of Darfur. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lenny, the bulk of his material was stuff that was shot in Africa, that was shot in a refugee camp, and uh, our director actually was embedded secretly uh, with the rebels. I don't know how... I think the government knew he was embedded with the rebels. They just kind of looked the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, Lenny, it, w- along with Ted Braun, the director, you know, they had to find a story there like ted knew what was interesting you know he was there he was shooting it but they had to find the characters and they had to find the you know uh find the story in that material and that was like um 200 hours of footage from africa wow now i uh i don't i don't know if i even want to broach this oh please do all right so you're talking about in in a documentary, you know they they shoot uh, an event or you know basically just a, a situation or a world. David sees where I'm going already, probably, <laughs> and they find a story within it. Now, there are some I documentaries. Think, I, I, I think I might know where you're going. Yeah, as well. I imagine everyone knows <coughs> where I'm going, um, and I'm not about to rant. I'm actually about to get your take on it sure. as somebody who has worked with documentaries because I feel like people like myself and and you know that some others are maybe a bit too condemning of certain documentarians <laughs> like yeah like Michael Moore and <laughs> uh most recently like uh Larry Charles and Religious where you know they had an idea before they started shooting of what they wanted to do what they wanted to get across and that influenced what they shot yeah. you know they didn't shoot and then find a story they came up with a story first and then shot accordingly um you know, and I feel like I know I've been very vocal about how that frustrates me, uh, you know, in in a lot of in, in on several levels. You know, one is that uh, I disagree with a lot of things that religious said. I disagree with a lot of things that Michael Moore says. But also as a film student, like I feel like I, I understand that like a documentary can't show everything. I understand that. But like I just feel like you're not doing what. You could, an exam a real examination of this could be so fascinating, but you're so busy doing what you wanted to do. Like, is that what do you th- what do you think of what I just said? Yeah, I mean, that's people have a bias, and yeah, I mean, there's no like uh, kind of ethics board for documentary filmmakers right. out there. I, I feel, you know, I, I I can only talk about the films that I've been in the right. cutting rooms on, right? And I know, you know, there's controversy with Michael Moore, especially because he can he's got a bias and mm-hmm. he can skew things. And yeah, you can you can do that in a documentary because you have the, you're you're editing together material. You can make it look any way you want. I guess you just have to hope that you know whoever's making the film has some sort of ethical boundary. It, it uh, seems like to me like. Anyone who makes a documentary d- has a story in their mind going in. Yeah. You know, that's not necessarily the problem. Unless you're, I mean, if you're, like the people who made Capturing the Freedmen's, like, didn't really know what they were getting into when they yeah. started. <laughs> but, um, and they, so they sort of, that's sort of the exception. They sort of had to just shoot and find the story. Uh, 
Um, but so certainly it's going to inform what you shoot. There, no one would ever pick up a camera and just shoot and say, "Hope I find a story." They'd right, always right. have a story in mind. Yeah. But yeah, it's what Frank's saying. You have to you have to just hope that the people like. It's like we had did an episode on uh, talking about journalism in mm-hmm. the movies, you know, and we were saying about about journalists is like you have to hope that they have uh, a, a yearning for the truth, right? And you you just sort of ha- have to hope that uh, a document a documentarian has that same thing and will be responsible with the with the footage that he or she has yeah. accrued. Well, and I can you know I, I can cite examples from the projects I've been on. Darfur now I feel was actually pretty even handed, and that. Ted Braun, the director, wanted it. Darfur now wasn't about. It was just trying to kind of shed light on an atrocity that was happening, mm-hmm. you know, halfway across the world. But he wanted to also let you know Darfur is a very complicated complicated situation, and mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even explain it to you. I mean, I worked on the thing for eight months, and I got to talk to people from Darfur, and they had gone there. I still don't even know how to exactly explain it, but we interviewed members of the Sudanese government, or Ted did. You know, so he took he he definitely wanted to get the government's side of the story in there to be fair, and it wasn't yeah. manipulated. Um, we didn't get as much in it as he wanted, um, but he he you know he he shot footage of the rebels. He shot footage of. He shot lots of interviews with government officials, um, so there was he definitely could have you know slanted it to make the government look absolutely evil and horrible, and some of them are, but not all of them are. It's a very complicated situation. Arctic Tale, on the other hand, that was the sequel to March of the Penguins. Mm-hmm. March of the Penguins, from what I understand, was they shot a specific event in the lives of the Emperor Penguins. Right. Um, the French version, they vo- they had voiceover with goofy t- characters and whatnot. And, uh, Which is insane to think of. And National Geographic bought it, took the characters out, took the voiceover out, and hired Morgan Friedman. Arctic Tail, on the other hand, was 85% of that film was stock footage, and those were composite characters. Hmm. There was never any... No one ever tried to lie about it. It's in the credits. You know, it's it's clearly stated there. So that there's definitely some manipulation there. Is it nefarious? I don't think so. I mean, the the point of Arctic Tale was to get the word out that uh, there's animals and uh, ecosystems that are in trouble in the Arctic. So, and the way they told that story was about fifteen percent of it was the directors going out and shooting footage with a sp- specific intent for the overall story, and the rest of it was. You follow three polar bears and three walruses, but you don't see this. It's not the same actual animals. It's like 15 different animals composited together. So, I mean, yeah, there's manipulation there, but yeah. I don't. But it, it, what you said is not it's not nefarious. I don't think it's so. It's a good word for it. People, I mean, there were, when it came out, people did get a little uh, testy about it. I mean, there was hmm. definitely, like, feedback that they kind of felt ripped off, but. Hmm. That's and to go back to the the idea of of being nefarious and what David said. Well, actually, what what you both said about how you know we should try and have faith in these filmmakers that you know they're telling us you know that they're being honest, they're not being nefarious or deceptive. Um, and the idea of having faith, uh, you know, between the audience and the filmmaker, I think it can go the other way as well. Like, I feel uh, there's there's a documentary called Hell House. Did you see it? 
No, but I am familiar. Okay, with- and David, you, you've seen it as well. Yeah. But it's, you know, I, I love that documentary. Like, when I, when I talk about, like, religious, I'm sorry, I'm just on this kick with religious lately, um, because it represents to me... Not not even just because I'm a Christian and it and it says I'm stupid or mentally deficient, um, not just because of that, but it, it just it represents like to me the height of what of like the way documentaries are perverted, uh, and so so that's the example that I've been using. But like the subject of Hell House and Religious is you know, pretty similar. I mean, it's about religious, you know, religious, I'd say fundamentalists, you know, um, Mar and Charles go one step further and say that all religious people are like this, Mm -hmm. but let's just stay with, uh, fundamentalists. And now the, 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 I don't know, what's the name of the filmmaker who made Hell House? Do you remember? I can't remember. I can't either. But anyway, so he, you know, he found a specific situation, a specific thing, which is these, these Hell House things that, you know, and they put out this, this packet that people can do. And, um, and he found within that, he found some Christians that were like, you know, idiots. And then some that were actually kind of good people, you know, and intelligent people and can, you know, and then there was a scene where David and I, I remember when, when we watched it, we talked about where there's a a guy who is a a security guard for this church. And he also happens to be a Christian and he's just a really nice, well-rounded, intelligent, soft-spoken guy. And there's this like punk kid who's like screaming in his face and like gives him the finger right in his face, which just seems inappropriate to me. But, um, (laughs) and so like it, it, uh, those punk kids, when will they learn? (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) And so, um, rock and roll. And so (laughs) in showing, so in showing them and, and how kind of rude they were, uh, but then also show it, being willing to show kind of the 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 dumb or in some cases just there's one guy who's just a total prick. Um, but then also showing like it showed it really showed positives, negatives. It showed everything. And I felt like in doing so, the filmmaker had faith in the audience that I will now let you decide where you fall on this, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I'm sure the filmmaker falls a certain way. But and he has faith that hey I've given you all the information, what you do with it is up to you. I have faith that maybe you'll fall where I fall. But if you don't, well, what can you do? Whereas, you know, a film like Religious, it ha- I don't think it has any faith in the audience, which is why it needs to tell you every step of the way. This person is bad. This person is bad. You know, it doesn't really even talk to quote unquote good people. And I'm reminded of the reason I bring that up is because like the approach. Uh, who who directed uh, uh, Darfur now? Ted Braun. Ted. Ted Braun. Brong. Um, you know, and his approach to the government. You know, he had enough faith in in his audience that hey, you know, some of these government officials are bad. Some of them are okay, but certainly what they're doing is bad. Mm-hmm. And but I'm not going to portray them as pure evil. Yeah. I will have faith in the intellect. And the morality of my audience to let them figure out that, yes, these people and what they're doing are bad, like figure it out on their own without me having to hold their hand and take them there. And it's, you know, and it's amazing the, I mean, I'd say like editing, of course, is is, uh, absolutely, you know, super important to the process. I didn't really understand how important it was until I went to film school and started editing things myself. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is when you make a film, regardless yeah. of what kind of film it is. Um, but I feel like it's almost 
maybe even more important to a documentary because that's really when you make oh yeah you set the tone of the film you set the goals of the film i mean it really you're kind of you're kind of writing the script in the editing room yes. yeah yeah i mean and it's it, it astounds me which is one of the reasons why i find this topic to be fascinating because well you, you got to uh, talk anecdotally about a, a, a documentary i want to talk okay. about one that because i want to bring up the issue of you use we use the we're using the word faith but and it's good that the the documentarian has faith in us but we don't mm. necessarily have to have just have faith in the right. in the in them we should also take it with a bit of a grain of salt yeah because i remember when i saw um what's it called? the revolution will not be televised did you see that frank mm. no uh the one it's about hugo chavez in okay. venezuela and uh it's so slanted and like <laughs> so I, I watched the movie and i was like can Hugo Chavez really be this awesome? Like, <laughs> is that possible? It's called so, propaganda, David. Yeah, so then I went and looked him up, and I was like, oh, no. He's a, he's a, a, a whiny child. Yeah, I mean, he's not the, the a blowhard. He's not the devil the Bush administration wanted people to think, but he's no, not He's he's not. He's not, not a, a super great guy, no. Man, no, either. Not, not at all. So that, that, that's what I'm saying, is that we, we kind of have to... Absolutely, yeah. As with anything that, that has the... Uh, possibility of being propagandistic we we have a responsibility to some extent to to take it with a grain of salt yeah right right and it's uh you know um there's a there's a film i never saw it but in the in the trailer they have uh pen gillette making this point the film is michael moore hates america i haven't (laughs) seen it even though i don't like michael moore because even i have i have a line (laughs) and um and the filmmaker interviews a lot of people one of the people that he interviews is pen gillette who makes the the, I believe the quote is, I don't know it exactly, but he goes, he goes, he goes. You know, when you make a documentary or put anything on film, you're gonna fuck it up. <laughs> it's it's the degree to which you fuck it up and how willing you are uh-huh. to do it. You mm-hmm. know, and so so going into a documentary, you know, it's like, well, this can't, this isn't unless I'm just watching an uninterrupted shot that is just completely raw, but even then, the presence of the camera could have changed things, so you're never seeing anything completely as it is. Right. So you got to go in, as David said, with a grain of salt, acknowledging that, yes, to put it in Pendulette terms, it has been fucked up in some way. Well, that's kind of a stupid thing for Pendulette to say, because he's made the yeah. the right-wing Michael Moore series on Showtime bullshit, <laughs> which... But it's the same way, like, because I take Michael Moore with a grain of salt, and mm-hmm. I find his movies enjoyable, and it's yeah. the same with bullshit. I take it with a grain yeah. of salt, yeah. but it's a really fun show to watch. I th- oh, yeah. I think, though, Mike, for me, Michael Moore is more, for better or worse, he's more than a documentary filmmaker. He is this kind of polarizing figurehead of our culture, and he mm-hmm. wants to be that. Mm-hmm. So whenever I think of Michael Moore, I, do, I think he's beyond just a documentary filmmaker, and he is what... He is what he has crafted himself to be, which is whatever you you know people want to call him the Rush Limbaugh of the left or whatever. Mm-hmm. That that's what he is. He's more of a he's more of like a political message than actually like a documentary filmmaker that wants to go out and explore the world and tell stories about it. He wants people to hear his viewpoints and in in any uh, medium. I mean, he's written yeah. books. He goes on lecture tours. Yeah. He's had television shows. He does documentaries. I mean, he directed Canadian Bacon like <laughs> one, like one way or another like yeah he he is more of a he is more of like a public figure yeah. who has an opinion and maybe that you know maybe that's the problem with uh you know I'm sorry to bring it up again religious <laughs> is that even though the even though the uh 
even though the director has worked in other things and and is primarily uh, a director and a creative force like Bill Maher is a public figure with oh, yeah. an opinion yeah, and yeah. so I I wonder if like when people like that who are not primarily documentarians like when they get into it I wonder if if they wind up kind of uh, tweaking the format a, a bit much because of what they're used to and what their uh, life goals are. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, I'll, I'll let you in. Oh, go ahead. Just that. Uh, yeah, when someone comes into documentary from that, you know, through that entryway, mm-hmm. they're more likely to use it to their own means. Whereas the, you mentioned Hoop Dreams before. I mean yeah. That it, you know, what's the name of that company that made that in Chicago? The oh, it's like a collective of yeah. Docu- I don't they, remember, they did but Stevie I know. Yeah. as well. Like those guys just want to make documentaries. Yeah. Like they yeah. they don't have like necessarily a, a point of slant. view. Yeah. They just want to they're like they're like journalists. They just want to make documentaries and they just go out and shoot for years. I mean, yeah, Hoop Dreams is 8 years, Stevie's like 3 or 4 years. Well, and you know, I'm sure they do I mean, everyone has a bias. I'm sure they do have some sort of bias in there, but yeah, I mean, their role is yeah. documenting the world whereas Michael Moore, I think his He's just wanting everyone to hear what he has to think about. Yeah. What do you think Thoughts. of? I, I'm sorry that I that I've turned this into a discussion of documentaries as opposed to just editing, but um, it's fine with me if it's okay with Frank. Frank, are you all right with that? <laughs> yeah, we could talk about other stuff too, but yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> How you doing, Frank? What's going on? Uh, it's okay. What'd you have to eat today? Don't oh, I had a great me. breakfast. Um, did bacon. you eat at the uh, Paquito Moss across the street? No, because I ate there's it. a. There's a Paquito Moss right across I the street. It that. sure is. Yeah. There's no question about th- about it. That is a Paquito Moss. Well, I want to throw in a... I ate at Coffee Table today in Silver Lake on Rowena. It's a oh. fantastic place for breakfast. I yes, recommend I recommend everyone I've go there. there frequently. Okay. Oh, you go have? On. Yes, I have. It's a good place. Good coffee. Yeah, I'm feeling left out. I haven't even heard of it. Oh, man. You guys, have you been to uh, King's Road Cafe? No. In, it's in, like, West Hollywood, so I'm never going to go there. But it's supposed to be, God, like... why would you? Listen. Ugh. <laughs> it's supposed to be like a, a great cup of coffee. Like they brew each cup individually. Best chicken strips I've had in the city, and I am something of an authority on chicken strips. Uh, eat well in Glendale, mm. specifically in Glendale. I've heard okay. they're not as good a, uh, at other eat wells. The eat well in Glendale. Is that that's on brand? That is on brand. Yes. Yeah. Maybe so. the three of us just one weekend we can just go out. And Let's go yeah. now. Let's get coffee, chicken <laughs> strips. Um, and yeah. I, now I have forgotten what I was going to say about <laughs> yeah. documentaries. Um, but uh, oh shoot, yeah. <laughs> that's it'll, my fault. It'll come back Sorry. to me. You guys continue talking. Uh, yeah, editing. We can talk about editing. Yeah, by all means, you go. You do that. I'll think. Yeah, about we'll to get back to editing, editing documentaries as opposed <laughs> to editing. We're not gonna go to, anyway. Uh, uh, it's not because obviously the the method is different because the footage is different, but the, the method of actually doing the editing, but the end result is is different too. There's a different aesthetic, yeah, by, uh, by yeah. necessity. Yeah, I mean, but when you say the method, I mean the method's the same. You sit down in front of, or, uh, uh, maybe I'm misinterpreting interpreting that. Uh, but it's still it, somewhat different because you have to comb through footage and, like we said, write the script. And yeah, it, so okay, we, we yeah. already we already talked about sure. that. The, the the assembly of the film is different, but the end result is by necessity different too. You know, because you don't have you don't you don't necessarily have coverage. You know, well, you I mean, you do. You have an event, and you have cameras at that event, and they cover. The, yeah, in a way, you have coverage. Okay, that's what I wanted to, to get to. Sure. So. Yeah, yeah. You, um, 
I was talking well, Lenny Lenny Feinstein, who uh, he was uh, one of the editors on Dark Four now. Um, he was telling me about he he does a lot of reality TV now, and um, shoot, I wish I could remember the show. It'd be good for this story. Uh, but Farmer he, wants a wife. No, he was working. On, That's all I got. <laughs> it was something on the the Discovery Channel, and he was just saying how this show's particular camera crew was just better than most because they covered whatever they had more footage than they needed but the thing was anything that happened they covered it with like three cameras and they had mm. he, he was like yeah there, there's a woman fixing a vacuum cleaner they they shot it for a half hour with two cameras which was overkill but they still covered you know, he still yeah. had something to work with he you know so you, yeah i guess my long-winded story there that i can't remember the name of the tv show there mm. is coverage in documentaries and uh so okay, that, well, my my thesis, I guess, has been disproven that it's vastly different, but it's it, it, it really it, is more the same. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's crafting a story, it's storytelling, it's there's more footage. There are there are differences, but I think on the large scale, the grand scale, it's it's similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there is this kind of mindset that. As you can get, you know, p- people get in a, like a pigeonhole out here and whatever they're doing. Well, a documentary film, you know, filmmaker can't do anything else. They can just, you know, a documentary editor just knows how to edit a documentary. That's not true. A good editor, I think, can edit anything. Mm-hmm. It's not, it th- you know, it's it's the same basic principles, I think, from documentary to film to TV to even commercials. You know, you're, you're, you're putting elements together to construct an emotion to, to to construct a story to develop characters be it a 30 second spot or a you know epic film like Lawrence of Arabia or a documentary like uh, Hoop Dreams you're, you're you're trying to do the same thing right. okay well Tyler did you A either think of what you were going to say or B think of another good place to have breakfast in Los Angeles uh, a, because uh, there's a lot of not great breakfast out here. Um, it, it's funny because I know, you, I don't know if you heard that discuss. There's a discussion about that on comedy and everything else. Oh, really? Because it, actually, we talked about it with Jimmy Dore on. Our oh, show. that's right. We yes, talked yes. About how there's no good breakfast and uh, there's fantastic breakfast. In, I, uh, I I like the uh, I like to get the Los Feliz Benedict over at House of Pies on Vermont. I don't like House. I like the pies. The pies at House of Pies. Have you had fantastic. the Los Feliz Benedict? I just don't eat at House of Pies anymore. Okay, it's, it's uh, eggs. You know, you get you get your English muffin, you got turkey, egg, avocado, and hollandaise sauce. It's amazing. It is a good thing that our donation drive is over because people would <laughs> demand money from us for this. Um, so I That's remember too. That's a good place to go, by the way. A little pricey. It's a little pricey, but I do like uh, good food. And I don't the, like their. The, hash I like browns. the breakfast. You don't like their what now? Hash browns. Huh. I do. Best oh, breakfast. You know uh, I think, I'm thinking of a different place. Never mind. Oh. <laughs> Best breakfast I've ever had. You need to pay to park there. Is the Springfield, Missouri, uh, airport cafe literally <laughs> the best? Great eggs, great bacon, great hash browns, great toast. Every aspect of it is phenomenal, and it's really fast because they assume you you've got a flight to catch. Well, hey, if I have a layover there, I'll, I'll there you go. There. You probably won't. Maybe I'll just it's fly not a layover type place. Oh, okay. Um, it's it's more of a destination. Sure. Well, 
This has been fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we should okay. maybe wrap up. Okay. Um, I was curious, um, <laughs> and this is really just getting your guys' take on it as a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll couch it in this. In 19, I believe, 1975. That's, that's Tyler's catchphrase on the show, if you don't listen. He says, I like to. I'll couch it in this. Yeah, it's, which is my way of saying. At least once an episode. Which is my way of saying, I'll talk about something else and get to this. <laughs> okay. Um, in 1974 or 5, um, James Whitmore was nominated for Best Actor mm-hmm. for Give Him Hell, Harry. Mm-hmm. Here's what that film was. He was doing that as a one-man show on stage. People filmed the stage. Granted, I mean, they didn't do a lot of camera movement, but and it wasn't like just one guy sneaking in with a camera. <laughs> I mean, it was arranged, but it was a stage. You hear applause, you hear laughter, you hear all that. Um, they did not take it from the stage and make it into a film. Sure. They merely did that, and he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor for that. I don't think that should count. Now, <laughs> as as good as as good as he is, now. Would you like to bring this up with the Academy? Maybe you can write them a letter. I I would love to, but I think probably most of those people are dead. Yes. Um, an inconvenient truth, mm-hmm. which is a, I I enjoyed the film. I mean, it won best it won best documentary. But aside from, I don't think Al Gore deserved the nomination for best actor. If that's what you're getting at, <laughs> <laughs> he's kind they of were wooden. they were way off their game uh, <laughs> that that year. But so, aside from like shots of Al Gore on his plane looking out the window in a you know with a pensive face on, um, aside from that, it really is just a f- filming his presentation. Now again. It's not a performance kind of thing, so it is a it is a documentary. Yes, but I feel like the content itself is dynamic, but the way they f- made the film is not really that dynamic. So I, I so you're saying Inconvenient Truth is more of a concert film? Yeah, I mean you could put it that way, but concert films are shot more interestingly, you know. I think, and so it just I don't know. It it, it always bothered me. I I enjoy the film, but like when it won best documentary i thought like well how much of it was a f- was the filmmaker making a choice aside from just saying okay we'll shoot the stage now like aside but from Al Gore that was a producer on the movie right yeah, yeah. So if it's his presentation then he has yeah and an inconvenient we're getting into intricacies here I th- right and i think if you really want to look at it an inconvenient truth it, winning the oscar that's kind of i don't know if i want to say that was a very topical film right that was that kind of feeds into the notion of the liberal bias of Hollywood. Not that I want to get on that tangent, but yeah. I think th- that movie winning an Oscar for documentary is more of a statement than we're rewarding a, a work of art or right. a, a fine documentary. Or anything. Um, what I was going to ask related to it, among among other things, is you know my first instinct when I watched that movie. I mean to bring to actually bring editing into this is that there's not a great deal of editing when it's just showing him. Mm-hmm. Do you know with his presentation and all that in the slideshow? Um, there are several cameras, but there's not a lot of like cutting or, or anything like that during. Well, but that's a choice them choosing not to do that. It's a choice, and I, do we know that they didn't cut out any of the presentation? Oh, I I, I don't know. I I mean I all I know is that like gotcha. Is the, oh, fair enough. <laughs> um, but but the way in which they shot it was not really that memorable. But at the same time. 
if they had tried to do like some interesting camera moves or camera tricks or something or interesting like, editing, then it would draw away. Then it might draw away from the presentation. And so that's the thing. I'm on the fence about how good a documentary it is because it's documenting, uh, documenting. Ugh. <laughs> it's documenting <laughs> its subject in the way that best illustrates its subject. So, like, would you say that you consider it a good documentary or a concert film, as David said? Well, I've never seen it, so I don't know. Oh, uh, whoops. Okay. Um, so, David, so you've seen it, right? Nope. <laughs> all right, well, that's our episode of... I'm Bachelor already a liberal. I don't need Al Gore to tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, to be honest, yeah, I, I, that, I, it was a conscious decision not to see that because I just felt like... It was yeah. I mean, I'm I already am yeah. of that camp. I don't need yeah. to be preached to. Yeah, anymore. I'm the choir here. I'm yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. It also won best song that year. So let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think Al Gore deserves really a one best song. It's uh, who was it? Melissa Etheridge sang a song of course, uh, in remember. the film, and it won remember. best song. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fun. Oh, Absolutely. It. It's over. Yeah. It's yeah. been an hour. Wow. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure the listeners like at home going. Oh, not fly by. I don't care where you eat, <laughs> what you eat, really anything about you. Well, I just wonder. Stop talking. Most of the people you have as guests are uh, comedians, correct? Yeah. Most of them, but yeah. You're yes. not the first non-comedian to be okay. on the show. I just wonder, I wonder how interested people will be in a assistant editor on documentaries. <laughs> well, <but> theoretically, <laughs> they should be more interested in you and less interested in, you know, Josh Fatum. Because they're theoretically, they're... Film fans, right? Sure. But I think we have a lot of crossover. I think I we think do. we have a little crossover. Yeah, we'll we don't have any crossover. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Got to stick by your statement. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, the donation drive is over now, uh, and we will be announcing. It doesn't mean you can't donate to us anymore. We'd right. be happy to. It just means that <laughs> yeah. you won't. Please, you don't I get mean, it into money. the raffle. Yeah, if you want to look at it a certain way, the donation drive is never over, but, <laughs> but the, the raffle, raffle aspect of it yeah. is now is now over, and we will uh, announce the winners uh, of the raffle next week. And we want to say thank you for your donations. Absolutely, thank you. We really do appreciate it. Um, you know, it, it really it's very encouraging, and and on my part, somewhat touching. I can't speak for David. Um, <laughs> He's kind of emotionally dead. You've you know that. You you've been hanging out with it's, him for 2 it's years. It's weird. It's like the man has no soul. It really it's yeah. I mean the it's the dead eyes. It's the dead eyes. They really <laughs> exactly. it wakes me up in the middle of the night sometimes. But uh my mom says I have pretty eyes. Well. <laughs> I was okay. God I'm not going to say this on the podcast. Mother. But what? the no, it's I got a weird Facebook friend request from somebody who has two mutual friends. Uh, with me, one is your mother. My mom's on Facebook. Yes, along with every other sibling you have, um, except you. I'm not on Facebook. And then, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. I'm not on. Facebook. All right. Um, so it was that, and then the pastor of a church I used to go to in Los Angeles. So this person is friends with those two people who shouldn't know each other at all. Or that's really weird. I love They're stuff friends like with that. David's mother and and this pastor. And then who, they request this person who sent you the. I don't reckon. I don't know their name. I, it's I not, mean, uh, it's not your mom. No, no. She might know both of them. Yeah, but she doesn't know the pastor. There's. <laughs> Do you, you know, think I don't someone's even... trying to get in your head and play with you? That's entirely possible. Well, I listen, believe it. We gotta wrap this up because I have to go ponder the fact that my mom is on Facebook. <laughs> uh, that is, that yeah, is enjoy that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to announce that because now people are going to be looking for her. No it's like, her hey, listen to your son's podcast. So <laughs> that'd be hilarious. 
So, uh, so yeah, sorry about the, uh, the random nature of this episode. Uh, <laughs> David and I just recorded uh, four episodes in a row. A little punchy. Yeah, no, I, I think I really think this was a good episode. Okay, we'll talk about I, it I had a good time. It ends. Thanks for being on the show again. No, thank you yeah, guys. Really. It, um, was, it, was, it was fun. It was nice to finally have you on. I know yes. it's something that we were talking about. We've been talking yeah, about for it was, yeah, it was fun. ever since the beginning. Yeah, yeah, and I actually remember you guys uh, back in Chicago. There was we were hanging out at David's place, and David was like, "You know, Tyler, me and you, we should have a, we should have a, we should do a podcast or something." I don't think that. Did I don't think that it happened. It happened. <laughs> that never happened. It, I, swear I, think I didn't happen. do what a podcast was. I didn't five discover podcasts until maybe, after I'm, he moved away. I'm sorry. Maybe it wasn't specifically a podcast, but you were like, "We should have our own show." Oh well, that uh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's no sorry, question about that. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just like that you just make up these stories about us, <laughs> and I got another story. <laughs> I remember the one time, Frank, that you were saying. I should be an assistant editor on the sequel to March of the Penguins. <laughs> you went and saw March of the Penguins, and you said, if there is a sequel to this motherfucker, I am not going to edit it. I predict I won't be ready quite at that point, <laughs> no. but I will be the assistant editor. <laughs> okay, this is an, that's enough. Okay. You, uh, if you guys want to get a hold of us, it's david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can, uh, and please do follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension. That's right. And if you want to get a hold of me, just get David. Call David, get my phone number. We can go out get drinks yeah, or, or something. Or find my mom on Facebook. I'm yeah. sure that Frank is friends with my mom. Sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, we'll get you next time. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.